comment on that and talk about you know them them trying to uh, God get everyone back to fucking work and back to fucking school. The school mm-hmm. shit. Like yeah. how the fuck are they like the idea that they're gonna have? Well, we're gonna have kids come in on alternate days, and it's like that's so it's, it's not like, going to help. What kind of, edu- what kind of education are you trying to give them? Like, what's the point of that? Well, they come in on some days, they can get help from their teachers, and they come in on, they don't come in on other days, they can work from home. That's the idea behind it. But the problem yeah. is you're still consolidating a large group of people. And actually, honestly, that model is not the worst thing for, like, say, I don't know, middle schools or something like that. But when you're sure. talking about colleges, where students are still going to be, you know, dorms have to still be open if students are going to be on campus for yeah. every other day of the year. Yeah. And if dorms are still open, these students are still going to be passing around the fucking coronavirus to each other. And yeah, and from what I what I have learned um, is that the the virus has been <clears throat> it has been uh, uh, mutating uh, to become more virulent and a little less severe. Which I mean, um, that's that's what viruses. Dude, right? They it's get, common, yeah. Yeah, which is that's that's usually yeah, or they die like, out quickly. Yeah, because if they just kill yeah. everyone, they infect. I mean, we, we you, you played the game Pandemic. There's like a board it, game it, and it a digital the source game of, of it. it is the source of my entire education on. <laughs> uh, okay, okay. On <laughs> epidemic science. Okay, because um, that's like just the entire point of the game. <laughs> it's just like yeah, to make it less um, virulent, but. Or more virulent, but less lethal. That's like the entire point, because then it can yeah. spread. Yeah, yeah, that that is, that is the strategy. But like, the, the, didn't um, that game teach us like a shitload about how to handle this? Like the, the like in a lot the, of ways, the yeah. Way like that it, countries it, survive in the game is they close their borders, and it's like, yeah, you just shut down. That's all it takes. Yeah, um, and it's yeah, it. it I, I think that. Frequently, people when they look at like I've taken part in a lot of simulations, um, both like, simulate, <laughs> like 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 simulation right. I'm games. I'm doing some I VR mean, goggles. Well, I'm just like I've taken part in a lot well, of simulations. Okay, so we all you know we all live in a simulation, and so there's just that. But um, you know, so there's the baseline universal simulation, which is very real and very true and completely proven. But I mean, After that, technically, yes. I mean, mathematically, it's, it's, it's the most likely outcome. That's certainly the argument that's made. But I, you know, there's also... Not really evidence of it beyond right. math. Which and, means... so, and so, like, math yeah. can be very useful for figuring things out, of course. And then, and then you know, evidence can catch up. We saw that with, uh, I think it was the Higgs boson, among other things. But yeah. that's the most recent, like physics, you know, theoretical physics things I I have uh, I remember anyway. The, the gravity um, wave thing was pretty big, where they yeah, you know, they and so like you have sense, I think yeah. Einstein, but. and so you have simulation games, which a lot of people play. I love them um, because I'm a dork, but <laughs> uh, you know, so so you have pan, is it Pandemic Inc? Is that what it's called? I think something like um, that. Yeah. Yeah. Which is the thing? The thing is that a lot of people will like. I think the way that people have used it as sort of a basis for their education in uh, epidemiology um, is like, okay, so that is an actual benefit to the public is that we act, you know, that we have this understanding, at least a very basic understanding of how uh, disease is transmitted, particularly 
um, viruses. But uh, what I've noticed in basically every simulation that I take part in with other people and when I listen to other people's interpreta interpretations of simulations is that there's this issue where they like glom onto the wrong thing. Yeah. <laughs> instead of instead of like trying to see it as, as what it is actually a simulation for. It's about how do you think about it instead of um, necessarily the particular details. So like with the with the pandemic thing, it's like, okay, so you're thinking about it as a response and strategy uh, yeah. instead of necessarily, you know, each individual like tactic that you use, uh, like you shut the borders or you do this particular thing. And so um, I don't know. That's what I've noticed is people kind of get hung up on the, on the details and they forget about the actual thinking about why you do those things for a particular virus. Um, like it, it seems that probably the, uh, the number one way to prevent transmission of coronavirus is for collective uh, wearing of masks. Yeah, that's what Japan's done. It's been extremely successful. It's just that... right. And they're actually really pissed off at us right now, it looks like, because uh, we keep sending Marines over to our bases there who have the coronavirus. Yeah, they are justifiably very angry. Um, yeah. And it, so it's like, so arguably, if everybody on the planet wore a mask, every, you know, every time that they were in a public place or around other people, um, you wouldn't have to close the borders. You wouldn't but have my to close freedoms. the and all that stuff. My freedoms. Yeah. I, yeah, I that, refuse that's what I'm saying. to have my freedoms that... impinged by wearing a mask. It's the exact same reason I don't wash my hands when I go to the bathroom. No one's telling me what to do. I am. Uh, I, I will just uh, happily spread my filth across the world and no one can stop me. is uh, the other major simulations I did were like Model UN and uh, and then some like international like relations simulations when I was in college and uh, I saw a lot of fucking failures there with um, other participants who just like did not fucking understand the countries that they were simulating um, and had this sort of like caricature that it's only all, Americans, Americans could have. Yeah, okay. Yeah, all Americans that had this... Well, one of them was international. Um, I, I did it in Germany, and so there were a bunch of different people from different countries. Oh. Um, and so that was the better one. 
that was the best simulation that I that I took part in, and I was more of an organizer for that one. Um, but with Americans, it's like they just had these caricatures of what these countries were like without any real depth of understanding about how they behave, what the motivations are for their foreign policy, you know, the like the physical, the, the actual physical landscape that motivates so much strategic thinking uh, between countries. Yeah. So, you know, that's sort of leading into our our episode. But all I have to say is that people really don't fucking understand Russia. They don't understand China. They don't understand Israel. They they, they just don't fucking understand. See, I'm not allowed to make yeah. comments anymore because I've been sent to re-education. And so um, I, I, I apparently have to limit my um, off-color jokes to only making fun of Polish <laughs> people now. So, uh, Okay, that's fair. <laughs> and the Welsh. I can make fun of the Welsh and, okay, all I yeah. want. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 All right. So this is The Long Road. Uh, I'm Sasha. And I am the new and re-educated Trevor. Um, we are large supporters of investing in rehabilitation for those who break our cultural rules. Yeah. I just wish they didn't <laughs> think we all was fucking Welsh in the goddamn camp. Well, I don't know what you can do about that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So we want to talk a bit today about enemies. Uh, and particularly how we think about who are enemies uh, in like the the more like geopolitical international politics. Um, and there is so much to get into about it. But, yeah. Um, well, I think we're going to have to try and steer pretty clear of talking about the, the concept of like political enemies in specific countries. Um just yeah. because that ends up being a a different kind of conversation and i mean i don't yeah. want to i don't want to get into like some deep teardown of why the the democratic party and the republican party are enemies or are not um, yeah we can however agree that all states are the enemy all states are the enemy yes yeah yeah um but yeah so i mean like so who would you say are our big geopolitical enemies in like the well, in the broad context what who have we decided so, at the present moment are our big geopolitical enemies we as a not us yeah. but like the, the political so, machination I, of our country I, I was about to get into that is that when we talk about the word enemy we're talking a lot about language right that uh, frequently it's used to manufacture consent as you talk about a certain country as an enemy and what you're doing is you're preparing regular people uh, for hostile action against regular people in that country. Yeah. Um, and I, I mean, that's something that we've easily seen. So like, we already talked about that kind of in our propaganda episode. Uh, yeah. There is this sort of drive to uh, condition people's minds to be more uh, accepting of the concept of an enemy. Um, yeah. And that's not just for geopolitical stuff, but that, you know, can easily be turned into the marginalization and hatred of a subgroup within a country. Uh, I mean, to the point where you're talking about, like, you know, um, yeah. like Rwandan genocide and stuff like that, where there's, like, you know, the, the, the propaganda inside of a country becomes so much of 
the people living next to you are your enemies, that it can lead to this yeah, basically back and forth genocide for a little while. Well, depending on on the context and and a lot of other things, but yeah. Uh, so what I'm getting at is, um, I very specifically do not talk about my country or you know or or America as being us, um, you know, or or our government. You know, that's why uh, that's why I always refer to. Uh, I try to. I try very hard and very specifically to refer to it as this country, um, and not mine. Uh, and not ours, because we had no hand in producing it. Um, you know, a, as you know, to use a to use a Marxist term, the working class. Uh, you know, as the working class, we had no say in the structure of the state that uh, that you know controls the place we live in uh, and attempts to control us. So I think we've seen pretty clearly that we uh, not just did not have a say in its creation, but we do not have a say in its governance. Um, yeah, otherwise, clearly. I think we'd be wearing more fucking masks earlier. <laughs> yeah. And so that's one thing that, that's just one bit of language that I want to break down now is that, uh, you know, as we talk about enemies, um, I'm going to constantly refer to the, like the US government, the American government. Um, because that is what is really at play here. This is not something, you know, international relations are not the stuff of regular people. <laughs> like, it, it, you know, the, these are disagreements between uh, capitalist economic interests uh, and the, you know, and the political figureheads who represent them. Well, so, and we, we are going to be talking about Russia and talking at least briefly, I hope, about, you know, the Soviet Union. So that, you know, they're not, not only capitalist, yeah. but uh, the Stalinist uh, communism well, as well. So. Soviet Union is not just Stalinist, but... <laughs> no, but the, the time span I'm specifically thinking of. Yeah. Um, because I, I, that's something where actually I slightly disagree that I think that... Uh, using the word us is pretty appropriate to describe the American people because uh, I believe that uh, the American people do get uh, considered in how the uh, uh, political uh, drives of a nation are pursued because we're the ones they fucking lie to. <laughs> yeah, well, so like we have this like potential power Right. And that and that's always the like that. That's that is the danger is that you can't fuck with us too much. Otherwise, we will overthrow you. Um, I mean, in theory, in theory, I mean, the question becomes, how far can you go? That that is what, you know, like we see it on display every day today. Um, but uh, but, you know, regular people do hold a collective political power and uh you know and the regime knows that um and you know that's sort of like which is why they use certain words like regime regime <laughs> to de- you know to describe things um well, that that sort of um i don't know incepting of ideas into folks heads i mean that that that's big fucking business yeah um 
And that's why I thought like talking about the like you know the Iraq War because that yeah. was I think probably the easiest one for us to see as the American people is that it, it's it's widely known accepted it's pretty irrefutable that uh you know our governing the the governing forces of the u.s and uh media in the u.s lied to the american people about the threat that iraq posed to us in order to get us to go to war there and lied about the involvement that they had with the september 11th attacks and yeah basically created justification for us to go in there yeah. and I still know the, the, I can't remember what the modern death toll is, but I know like at the what the point we had, like you know, the big mission accomplished thing. I think it was yeah. two million dead civilians at that point. Iraqi civilians. And I, I think at the time we did the mission accomplished, like, you know, uh George H. W. or George W. with the uh, you know, big banner behind him on the uh the aircraft yeah. carrier. Yeah. And uh, and the numbers have just grown since then because um it turns out that uh running an empire is bloody business. It really is. And yeah, but the, like some of the folks who are really sort of behind that idea, um, this is you know why I want to talk about some sort of internal political stuff is the project for a new American century, which is some of the most uh, diabolic humans on the planet. Yes, These are, they are. I mean, the real fucking ghouls, and. Yeah. I, like the, the 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 project New American Century is a neoconservative like think tank that just basically was uh, created specifically so we could have a new sort of Pax Americana in the Middle East where we would go in, we would you know take over all these countries not in in like you know any sort of you know, political way, but basically do what we tried to do in South America and put in some very U.S. friendly leaders uh, to places that did not have U.S. friendly leaders and kind of make it so that we had a massive control over the area. And, and there are, of course, you know, U.S. friendly countries there, which is really funny because, you know, in Saudi Arabia is a key one. Like they are one of our key allies in the region. And had way the fuck more to do with 9-11 than Iraq did, but we kind of yeah. just turn a blind eye to that because they were not really pro-U.S., but they were uh, warmer to us than uh, some of the other, you know, uh, Gulf states were. Well, so but that's also, again, like, this is going to get back to what the real foundations of international relations are, is, again, capitalist interests and their political figureheads. So the relationship with Saudi Arabia was a very specific relationship established by Roosevelt, um, FDR, uh, near the end of World War II, um, where he... Uh, so he went to have the, I think it was the the Yalta conference with mm. uh, Stalin and Churchill, in, in which they essentially decided on the plan for how they were going to break up Germany uh, after finishing the, the, you know, after, after winning the second world war. Yeah. And from there he proceeded to go to Saudi Arabia, um, in secret because he didn't want Churchill to know. Um, <laughs> well, because Churchill would be like, Oh, you're talking to those. Uh, I can't use uh, any, I can't use any of the words that Churchill would <laughs> use to describe them because yeah. I have better education and I am a better person than Churchill now. Um, but, uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> but yeah, no, you, you couldn't really tell Churchill you're going to go talk to some people out in the Middle East about, you know, uh, uh, some sort of well, allyship while at the same time he was talking about, yeah. you know, gassing people. Um, yeah. So this was, this also had to do with the United States having after the end of the world, after the end of World War One, being set up as you know, the precursor to the world superpower, right? Because it now had all of the former superpowers in debt to, to it, right? Yeah. You know, yeah, Britain yeah. and France in particular. Um, and World War II was kind of what finally put an, you know, put an end to any any hopes that the French and British had to maintain their, their like, hold on their empires. Um, and yeah, part of that and- was also, like... A, for America to do that, they had to have a source for a reliable source of oil. And that is one of the reasons Roosevelt went to go and meet with the king of Saudi Arabia. Um, I think it was in 1945. Uh, and essentially, that is what that is what established the relationship with Saudi Arabia. Um, there are that's more still, details. That's one, of the dri- that's one of the biggest drivers for any sort of... Um... I, 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 not even just U.S. involvement because you know we just brought up you know Britain and I, I want to dig really into like you know Iran in a little bit, so I want to just bring yeah. up the fact that like the 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 political upheaval that has defined um, I'd say like you know mid twentieth century Iranian politics really started with the British supporting the coup yeah. of the Shah. Yeah, uh, the, and the, it's the essentially like, getting the. Shah. Yeah, and getting the U.S. government to to bring the Shah back. And the reason that's important to talk about now, though, is because one of the main reasons for that was because Iran controls the Strait of Hormuz, and that's where well, oil, and oil. That's where oil gets shipped through. A so part of it was also there. yeah, but part of it was also that the oil in Iran was uh, extracted by British petroleum. And we've pretty uh, and much then, mentioned um, yeah. the Bechtel Group on here, and another one of the uh, real kind of ghoulish organizations that has existed in this world. Um, and the Bechtel Group, uh, there's a great book on them called uh, The Secret Company That Engineered the World. Um, and part of that is that they, at this time, were going around through all of the Middle East and making really good friends with folks, especially on the uh, Persian Gulf, uh, in the Persian Gulf states. And building shitloads of pipelines to basically move oil around the Strait of Hormuz, so they didn't have to move it through it; they could move it other ways. Um, yeah, because we had to get that oil so that the you know the machine that is the uh, uh, why am I blanking on the name? Come on, uh, <sighs> Smedley Butler said it. What's the, what's the word? Come on, um. The racket. I'm a uh, military industrial complex. Whew, oh. God, God, I, <laughs> tip of the brain, man. Um, <laughs> that uh, that that's what keeps it going. You need the oil to keep it going. You need energy. Yeah. You you need manufacturing. Yeah. You need plastics, and that has been. Uh, I mean, uh, the majority of wars we've seen in this century have been resource wars. Yeah, um, and arguably. Uh, arguably, even the major wars were resource wars. Um, you could argue that World War II was very much about land. 
with a heavy, 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 heavy dose of racism. Yeah. Um, but, but so a I lot think, of wars that have been sort of, um, they, uh, they're not necessarily nationalist based wars. They sort of politicize the nationalization in order to fulfill these very capitalist interests. Yeah, I would say that that is frequently, though, the case for, I mean, pick a war, honestly. <laughs> yeah, um, that uh, I don't think you're going to find a war that wasn't good for business. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's true. Yeah, um, and I, I think to get back to to the question you asked um, that I, I didn't give a direct answer to, like, who does the U.S. government see as its enemies? Right. Yeah, we've we've touched on them kind of already. Uh, the one that probably the two that will come, you know, closest to mind are Russia and Iran. Yeah. Um, and then the third that's sort of waiting in the wings is China. Well, and that's a kind of an interesting thing is that we've not really been to war with any of those groups throughout this century. Um, no proxies, we, not, not, yes. Not, but... Oh, absolute proxies. I mean, we, yeah. we can talk about the. Uh, I mean, God, except, just... except not even Chinese proxies. Uh, China doesn't really. They don't really do that. Yeah, it's because we're it's not, not trying to go yeah. into uh, Africa that hard yet. Um, we well, yeah, not we yeah. that that the U.S. government US is not government. trying to go into Africa <laughs> that hard yet. Yeah. Um, because China has a lot of economic interest in uh in africa yeah um but uh i already brought iran so i want to dig into that because they are recently in the media again because they've uh asked the uh it was interpol they asked interpol, interpol. To, uh, yeah they asked interpol. arrest donald trump <laughs> um to hold him to justice for the extrajudicial killing of uh Soleimani, who was an iranian general um extremely important and influential Iranian <laughs> general. He uh, is maybe one of the most important Iranians. Um, yeah. 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 Probably the most important Iranian individual. And the way that he was killed, uh, for those who have forgotten, uh, is that it appears we invited him to visit Ira uh, Iraq so that we could actually have a meeting with him, or we had some proxies invite him to come visit Iraq. And then we just drone striked the shit out of him while he was on his way to what looks to have been a diplomatic mission. With, without telling the government of Iraq that that is what the U.S. government was going to do. Yeah. Uh, so there's yeah. A, a lot of levels as to why that's a war crime. Um, <laughs> and it is something that uh, really pissed off um a lot of people not just iranians yeah. um a lot of our uh, a lot of the us's i have to really watch my mouth on that fuck a lot of the us's <laughs> allies uh decried it almost immediately again the, the yeah. government of iraq which is in theory a like us independent government. <laughs> an um, independent us friendly government yeah um uh, basically was almost i think that they did Basically they they did vote out. to expel all U.S. forces. Yeah, but that hasn't um, really happened because, I mean, they can say that yeah. all they want. But um, again, it's our empire. 
we, we're yeah. gonna keep our troops there to keep our little packs of Arakana going. Um, and pox. But, um, pox. Pax. Pox. No, what I mean is peace. Uh, yeah, but you're right. Um, it infuriated many groups, particularly groups who worked with the U.S. Because again, Iran is a is the leading political power, uh, state political power for the Shia uh, for Shia Muslims for Shia Islam. And, and beyond that, they are sort of a unique position in the Middle East in that they are a massive, incredibly powerful military organization, uh, military, um, they have one of the most powerful militaries in the world. And yeah. um, Americans don't, I think, realize that. We're talking about, you know, simulations and how Americans don't have a good sense of you know, how other countries think or how they are politically motivated. Yeah. And uh, beyond that, we don't really have a good idea of how other uh, militaries fight. Um, yeah. And that's, you know, been shown throughout the entirety of our failed wars that we have had throughout this century. Um, but there was a, a simulation. There was an exercise that we ran back in 2002. Uh, called the Millennium Challenge, where it was the U.S. military uh, versus it was a giant war games exercise. Yeah, um, and it was uh, two teams: red team and uh, green team, I think, and uh, blue team and green team. Yeah. Um, red team, blue team, red team. And yeah, and US the red team is the enemy. Blue, and red yeah. was the yeah the enemy. Um, yeah. And they were not defined as any specific state, although it was clear they were a Persian Gulf state. And there was it was, it was Iran. It was Iran right. because the only yeah. group that we would actually have uh, other conflicts with at the time would have been Iraq, which we had invaded. So there wasn't much to be concerned about there as far as uh, doing these large yeah. scale war games. And Long story short with the Millennium Challenge, because it's fascinating and people should look into it because it's really interesting to you know, learn about. Uh, we got our asses handed to us in a matter of hours. Um, so that's a little unclear because, uh, this again, it's a U.S. military war game, so there's not really an us and them in that one. Well... True. It was the U.S. military, the blue team, the red team, the red team handed, handed it. Okay. Yeah. And the reason was is that the uh, red teams decided to do asymmetric warfare and have uh, uh, they you know issued radio communication for um, uh, using Morse code and light boxes uh, and motorcycle uh, like messenger. Yeah, they yeah. used uh, messengers. They used like the small boats and jet skis to kind of fly under the radar. Um, but it was a, a strong enough defeat that um, the uh, generals who ran it decided afterwards to uh, just restart it and put a whole bunch of rules on red team about things they were not allowed to do because it wasn't fair. <laughs> uh, so basically, you know, like when you're like uh, playing like a video game online or something and, you know, someone on the other team kicks your ass and you spend the entire next five minutes screaming at them that they're a cheating little... Um, Welshman. Um, <laughs> the, Tilted. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we basically did the same thing. We were just like, no, red team cheated. That's not fair. And 
Yeah. That has uh, kind of, uh, that came up again earlier this year when it was possibly very likely that we were going to go to war with Iran because we had, um, we we the the U.S. government had assassinated someone who was a true hero there, who was very much treated by uh, a lot of Iranians as a heroic figure, and yeah, at a time when we're not at war with Iran, like it, it would be it would be kind of comparable to if. Uh, the Iranian government had like murdered um, Petraeus, like, or something. Petraeus. Yeah, like invited um, invited like Petraeus to meet with people, but even not, not even that though, because like we yeah. don't have a figure like Qasem Soleimani in right. the U.S. He's someone who's again who's been around for uh, I mean, he he like been around since the '80s essentially, and has been um, a, a, a key fighter in. Uh, Iran and Iraq's war in uh, uh, missions against the Taliban in Afghanistan, uh, in the Iraq invasion, uh, in the war against ISIS, in the Syrian civil war, pretty much every major geopolitical conflict in the Middle East, he has been a figure standing near the middle of it, who has been... um, pretty effective especially at fighting isis and especially at fighting the taliban and that one's important because again you're talking about geopolitical enemies and i think it'd be pretty hard to argue that the taliban were not an enemy to the united states um mostly because like they did a pretty good job at doing exactly what they intended to do by you know drawing the U.S. into a war that was a war of attrition in Afghanistan that just kind of drained our country. Um, yeah. But at the time, before 9-11, well, before 9-11, um, the uh, Iranians were also very concerned about this group, the Taliban, in Afghanistan. Yeah. Because it was pushing this sort of extremism that we now see reflected in ISIS. Um. And they were really concerned it was going to spill over the borders and begin sort of infecting different uh, disenfranchised groups in the Middle East and causing, you know, the massive spikes in terrorism that we have seen. Yeah. And because of that, the Iranians had already been running missions to disrupt the Taliban before the U.S. invaded Afghanistan. And those missions were run by Soleimani. So when the U.S. was attacked on 9-11... One of the main countries that was like, we will give you our support 100%, we'll give you essentially access to our military, was Iran. Iran offered yeah. to be our ally. And the people who said no to that were the, pro- the project for a new American century. All the ghouls who ran the, uh, the Bush administration. Yeah. And, um, I mean, we were, we were so close to actually, like, sealing some sort of like uh not friendship but allyship between the uh and we being i guess the u.s and iran we're very close to getting some actual allyship going on coalition coalition but more than that there actually was this uh attempt it seems to 
reduce tensions on both yeah. sides. Well, they yeah. they saw they like Soleimani and the Iranian government saw saw it as an opportunity uh, to uh, increase like to to have better relations with the U.S. government because they saw okay our interests align here. Yeah. Um, and so let's work on that together. Um, and, uh, and obviously that creates a lot more goodwill, right? Yeah. And that went along pretty well until, um, I, I've expressed my hatred for David Frum, uh, previously on the podcast. Um, yeah. I get angry when his name gets brought up. Uh, David Frum was one of these uh, Project for a New American Century ghouls who uh, was uh, one of the main speechwriters for George W. Bush. Um, he now is a political commentator. He he is still like around. He still like posts things all the time and like actually has a bunch of articles that he like, publishes pretty frequently talking about geopolitical stuff. He's not gone away. Um, but he is credited with. Uh, Coining the phrase uh, "axis of evil" when referring to uh, Iran, Iraq, and North Korea. Yeah, and that is when that when when George W. Bush said that in his speech, referring to Iran as part of this axis of evil that we needed. Like we had almost a uh, religious duty as a nation to destroy. And you know, invoking language about crusades, yeah, and all that yeah, that's David Frum. Yeah, and that came out at the same time as we were starting to have this attempt between us and the Iranians to sort of soften our relationship. And yeah, it well, that that got process, uh, threw a wrench in the process so fast. Um, yeah, and after yeah. that, one of the things that happened is that uh, Iran began producing. Um, large number of like shaped explosive charges that were shipped to different militants in the region and those are one of the main things that were used at the time to kill u.s troops it was sort of their retaliation for well yeah if you're gonna like actually try and kill us we're going well, to and it's not just retaliation again it has to do with interests there so they thought their interests aligned with the u.s government clearly the u.s government did not share that view um yes. And so the Iranian state said, okay, well, then we're going to do what we need to do uh, that continues to, you know, like if we cannot do it this way to, to have our, you know, to, to have our interests uh, supported, then we're going to do it another way uh, by supporting uh, insurgencies, particularly in Iraq. But, but as we discussed earlier, that's the, how majority of conflict has been fought. Um, between us and our, between the U.S. and their quote-unquote enemies around the world, uh, that is how. I mean, going back yeah. to I think Vietnam is a prime example of that was not a war between the U.S. and Russia, although it sort of was, and sort of a war between the In U.S. Some and ways. China. Um, but both, it, of us going, both uh, nations going there and having this. Uh, there's proxy wars. Yeah, so I would say that frequently enough, the U.S. will get directly involved in things and end up fighting uh, forces that are not exactly proxies. Um, like the North Vietnamese Army was not a proxy. No, uh, it was not. It's, it's... And 
and neither was the North Korean army, for that matter. And, and neither um, was Mujahideen. Yeah. Uh, you know, they absolutely had their own interests and their own bases of power. Uh, same thing with the YPG, their own interests and their own base of power. Uh, and, um, you know, typically the way that the Soviet Union operated is it did not get directly involved in conflicts. It provided material support. So uh, like in Vietnam, uh, the weapons that were shooting down American planes were Russian MiGs and Russian anti-aircraft guns and, and Chinese anti-aircraft guns. So, um, you know, and of course, uh, Vietnamese uh, soldiers would carry AK-47s or the, you know, or the, or the Chinese version of it. I think like the Type 56 or something. Yeah. Um, you know, along with SKSs and Mosin-Nagants and, you know, whatever, el whatever else they had. And then they, and then they had their own like homemade manufacturing of the Russian, uh, Papa Shah submachine guns. So like they got a huge amount of like material support from the Soviet Union and China, uh, in fighting the U S government and the U S government had troops on the ground. So that's a pretty common interaction. And then the U S government turned that around in Afghanistan in the eighties when the Soviet union in an incredible, uh, moment of hubris invaded <laughs> Afghanistan. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You, th you think people would learn, you know, you'd think people would learn well and, and they do. So I think that gets into, so like you talked about the modern history of, uh, Iran and how that sort of has set up, you know, and there, and then there's the history of like oil politics with Iran. Yeah. And, and the other thing that I do want to mention with Iran, because we're going to get into Russia pretty soon, I bet, um, is that one of the reasons that, uh, Iran has a theocratic government right now is that, um, when the Shah, um, uh, was basically being a, uh, I think generally agreed on sort of a corrupt leader, um, a dictator, dictator using the state of Iran as uh, his personal bank um, to make himself phenomenally wealthy. Um, there was uh, massive uh, political, internal political turmoil, um, and there were essentially two groups. There was a uh, very far right leaning theocratic group. Um, and then there yeah. was a sort of more uh, left-leaning progressive group that um, amorphous. Yeah, that was and disorganized. Yeah, and had sort of expressed more. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll just say more leftist ideals. Um, yeah, it was young people out yeah. in the streets uh, in 1979. Yeah. There, there were some leftist politics there. There were some communists, and um, that's why we, we, uh, sorry, why the United States uh, backed the other horse in the Iranian Revolution because we did not want the the specter that had been haunting Europe, uh, communism, to uh, take hold. Haunt the rest of the world. Yeah, we we were really afraid that you know same thing we were afraid about in uh, yeah every other conflict we had um at the time and part part of it's also that the the religious forces were the only ones that were kind of untouchable by the shah 
So when the Shah was reinstated, he proceeded to essentially have a reign of terror uh, against basically all organized groups uh, in Iran, especially political groups um, and student groups. Uh, and so the only people that he he didn't really have the power to to fight within the country were the religious authorities. And so by 1979, the only people who had any like real organized, any real organization that could replace the Shah were the clerics. Which is then why there was sort of this split between the, um, the, the, the Ayatollah then and then the uh, like, you know, prime minister. Um, because there is the democratic side of Iranian government, and then there is yeah. the religious side of Iranian yeah. government. And that split is reinforced, well, was for a long time reinforced by the Revolutionary Guard, um, yeah. which essentially was a theocratic military organization that yeah. when the Ayatollah it's came like into power- It's like a mix of the FBI, CIA, and special forces. That works for the clerics. Yeah. Um, and protects them from a counter-revolution. Yeah. Um, which- I think would have been very, you know, foreseeable at that time, considering that uh, both the U.S. and Russia had interests in uh, shaping the future of Iran. Sure, um, and you know, in in the in the aftermath of that, Iran did become did get closer with the Soviet Union, um, but. Uh, I don't think you could ever say that it was an ally of the Soviet Union, and, and the Soviet Union certainly didn't. Uh, the Soviet government did not look at them as like trusted allies. Right. Um, yeah, and I so I think that's a pretty good lead into Russian geopolitics. <laughs> it's okay. Um, uh, yeah. Take it from here, so, Russia. <laughs> so. Play us home. Yeah. So I think there there's a lot of like when we have this talk of like enemies and allies, um, it really ignores the the realities of like how close those relationships are. Um like you might say that uh Saudi Arabia is an ally of the US government, or that the German government is an ally of the US government, but those are two very different ally relationships. relationships yeah. Right. Um, they're founded on very different histories, on very different economics, on very just very different everything. Um, you know, whereas Saudi Arabia has a resource that it can absolutely, you know, that it can provide the U.S. government, and the U.S. government is essentially beholden to it. Um, Germany is a patron state instead, um, and essentially pays a tax to the U.S. government in the form of you can have your troops here and your air bases. And Saudi Arabia does that too. But, um, you know, the Germany's alliance relationship has a lot more to do with Russian geopolitics. Um, well, I mean, there is sort of the, um, the, the, the concept that, you know, there's, uh, I heard the, the, the idea is called, but that there is this connection between Berlin, Moscow, and um oh my god capital of china beijing. beijing yeah yeah um that there is this sort of uh 
political connection between the three because they are these um, hubs of uh, Eurasian political organization. Yeah, I, I would say that there is some truth to that, which is so like the, the German government definitely has a better relationship with the Russian government than the US does or the UK does. Um, so what this really gets back to is essentially the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Uh, if we want to talk modern Russian politics. Um, so, uh, and it goes a little, it goes farther back with that, with like the creation of NATO. But so you have the yeah. dissolution of the Soviet Union and it's kind of up in the air what really happened with all that. But what we know is that uh, there was a massive siphoning off of public resources to go to oligarchs, many of whom had been leaders in the Soviet state before. <laughs> um, Where have I seen this before? Yeah, I know. Um, and then... Uh, you know, it's kind of the definition of neoliberalism. They were just way better at it, frankly. Um, <laughs> okay. But, you know, siphoning off of public everything to the private. Um, yeah. But uh, they established a supposedly democratic government for Russia and elected Boris Yeltsin, who was uh, a crazy drunk, um, and who remained in power for... Uh, basically until 2000, and his vice president was Vladimir Putin. Um, and Vladimir Putin, before that, had been, I think it was the mayor of St. Petersburg. Uh, and before he had become the mayor of St. Petersburg, he had been an agent in the KGB. Um, and his role in the KGB is, like, he was stationed in Germany, uh, in East Germany, and, like, the KGB itself was not monolithic. He was kind of part of this outsider group inside the KGB, right. um, which I mean, is not to say, he, yeah, none of these agencies that have um, any sort of uh, intelligence capabilities are like one monolithic thing. There always is, some yeah, sort of, not, not even like I mean, you know, there, device there's a reason, yeah, there's a reason he was stationed in Leipzig, um, which at the time was called the Valley of the Dumb because you couldn't get radio and TV signals into it um, <laughs> in East Germany. Yeah. Oh my God. I never know that. That's, that's a yeah. great name. The Valley of the Dumb. Yeah. Um, Man, did we name the Beltway that? Fuck. Yeah. And so for that reason, uh, and also the East German state was much stricter about censorship than Gorbachev's Soviet Union. And so Putin literally didn't have access to media that were being published in the Soviet Union during Glasnost and Perestroika. Okay. So... All of a bunch of interesting stuff, uh, but in any case, um, Boris Yeltsin and 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 uh, Putin have like met uh, Bill Clinton, and there was some talk uh, after the so after the Soviet Union dissolved, there was some talk of Russia actually joining NATO, huh. um, okay. which is sort of an incredible thought to us today, and I think that. Uh, from the point of view of the U.S. government, it was an incredible international political blunder not to bring Russia into NATO. Um, yeah, because if they but had why, done that, why did you not? Okay, that, that's like, I, I'm oh sure, because I'm very... because people in the government didn't trust Russia. So like Bill Clinton even said, "Yeah, we'll think about that." When when Putin and uh, when Putin mentioned uh, Russia potentially joining NATO, I think okay. it was that was in two thousand. Um. And, you know, and his advisors, Bill Clinton's advisors were just like, no way. There's not a chance. What are you doing, Bill? 
Um, and does this still come back to the idea that Russia is our enemy? Yeah, so the the thinking, like, the despite the fact that Russia had, the, that the Russian, you know, like, the whole country had just collapsed. It was in uh, a level of poverty that is simply unheard of uh, since, since essentially uh, the Second World War in the okay. Soviet Union. Um, you know, there were people starving and on the streets and it was just like, it was a failed state. Um, and I would argue in many places it still is, but, uh, it was this time though, where the geopolitical interests of Russia were not certain, um, and where, uh, what their geopolitical interests would become would be highly dependent on how other countries staked out their relationship with Russia. And so, um, whereas earlier it was this, uh, adversarial relationship with the, with the comm block and, you know, or, um, the, the Eastern, the Eastern block, I forget the, the name of the, the Alliance, but, um, and then NATO on one side, um, you know, now it had become Russia alone, not really with many allies, and with an opportunity for NATO and, and the West to show some goodwill, which they proceeded to not do at all. Um, <laughs> well, because our enemies yeah, were not so there enemies. was sort of this, at least as it's reported, um, I, I believe by Putin, that there was a sort of like handshake agreement. It was never written down. Um between him and uh, I think it was uh, Bill Clinton, it it could have been like early Bush, um, first year Bush, uh, that there would be no NATO expansion farther eastward. Okay. Um, and there proceeded to be a large amount of NATO expansion eastward. Of course, yeah. Um, yeah, so the United States government made it a priority to expand NATO uh, and to expand NATO as far to the Russian border as it possibly could. Um which if you're Russian, you know, if you're the Russian government and you're looking at this and uh, you're thinking about your, you know, how to maintain your capitalist state, right? So that your, you know, your people can keep all the fucking money uh, in the control. Um, and you're looking at this alliance that was explicitly formed to be an adversary against your predecessor um, that you've taken over for. Uh, it might seem like your enemy is trying to get a strategic advantage on you. It could seem that way, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then add to that, uh, later on in the Bush years, and Obama continued this, um, there was a big push by the U.S. government to put, quote, a missile shield in Poland. Yeah. Um, which the Polish, the Polish government was just ecstatic about. Um, the Polish, the Polish government, and frankly, a lot of Polish people, inexplicably just love everything about America and trust everything that comes out of it, and just <laughs> hey, despise hey, Russia. I'm allowed to make Polish jokes. I'm just reminding you that. So yeah, um, just yeah. There, there's just uh, everything I read about what what the Polish government and Polish people think about America. I'm like, wow, you have eaten all of the propaganda. Um, I mean, I mean so, how, but, how much of that is sort of, I mean, like, is it like fandom? I mean, 
it's more yeah, I mean, like, like the sort of like kind of weeaboo culture in the u.s with you know uh uh you know american usually kind of i don't know folks who are just like oh my god like japanese culture is so wonderful and it's just so advanced do yeah. the polish people think that about us because if so i'm gonna be really really sad i would i would say that in my experience talking to polish people they think that america is uh a place where you have freedom <laughs> and then we proceeded to argue about the polish government uh oppressing atheists which okay. they were totally okay with yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um you know which is still a problem in the u.s too but uh so the u.s government wanted to put this missile shield in uh using uh, I think they were Patriot missiles. And Patriot missiles are like, they were not actually designed to be anti-missile missiles. Uh, they were originally designed to be anti-ship missiles, and then they were reconfigured to do this anti-missile thing, and they're not really that great at it. Um, and the stated reason for doing this, because the Russian government was immediately like, what are you doing? You're trying to do this to stop our nuclear capability. Yeah. Um, yeah, you're trying to make it so that you're the only nuclear power that that can actually do, you know, shoot their missiles. Um, and that would like fundamentally break the 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 balance that mutually assured destruction relies on, which for all of its problems has managed to keep this planet from being destroyed. Um, and so the US government's response is, oh no, it's for missiles from Iran. Yeah. Here's the problem. We have well, and and I mean, well, Iran does not have missiles that can reach that far. Well, no, but there is some evidence that Pyongyang does that there actually are North Korean missiles that can't hit the U.S. and therefore we can much more easily defend having a similar missile shield out in the right. Pacific. Right. So, so North Korean missiles that can reach the U.S. are a real problem for Poland. It's the thing is you also have to think about missile trajectories. A missile fired in Poland is not going to hit a missile over Poland. It's going to ho hit a missile over Ukraine or Russia or you know Moldova or the Black Sea. Like so so like there's just that that whole side of it and also Iran but again the government's reason for this US government's like reason for this was Iran Iranian missiles and which Iran does not have missiles that can reach that far. But that's one thing so, more my point with um, by by bringing up Korea is the fact that um, I easily can see the same rhetoric being used to defend uh, our placement of a missile shield over the Pacific that um, we could defend by saying, well, you know, one of our enemies is North Korea, and they have missiles, so. It seems it's yeah. very and so like it seems like kind of a reasonable thing to maybe have I don't know an anti-missile destroyer that you put in the Pacific. The thing is like, or you could do the same in the Baltic, there, or the Black Sea. Like the the U.S. government is capable of all those things, but to have a very physical installation in Poland is making a particular statement. And so the Russian government's response to this was, well, if you know, we have a problem with Iran having nuclear weapons, too. Recall that Russia was one of the parties to the Iran nuclear deal. Um, so how about we jointly operate this missile base uh, for all of our protection? Huh. 
To which NATO said, fuck no. <laughs> Just NATO said, sure, boy, howdy. We'd love to, Mr. Russia, sir. Yeah, and so, like, You've got those like very real, very aggressive things that the West has done to Russia uh, and that up to that point, Russia really couldn't reciprocate. It couldn't do anything that was nearly as aggressive as that, except for maybe buzzing some American warplanes over the, you know, over the Baltic Sea. They've done. Um, Which they, yeah, they continually do. And it's like it happens and it's dangerous, but it's like it's not the same as putting a missile shield in your neighbors in in the neighboring country or, you know, or on the other side of Belarus. But all all this is to get to that. um, The Russian government saw this response from the West and essentially said, yeah, all right. So that's the game. And we're going to start operating off of our own interests. And out of this also came uh, one of the fundamental uh, works that has it's essentially the russian version of the the new uh the new millennium project uh and it came out in the in a book called the foundations of geopolitics the geopolitical future of russia which are you mean the the project new american century yeah 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 so essentially the russian ideological response to that was this was this book called The Foundations of Geopolitics, The Geopolitical Future of Russia. And I have tried for the life of me to find an English translation of this book, and I can't. Um, and my Russian is not close to good enough to be able to read it. So we have to go with summaries that are given to us. Um, but uh, it's, a, it's a book written by um, Alexander Dugan, who is, uh, he's a fascist. He's outright a fascist. Um, <laughs> oh, okay basically unapologetic about it um and a russian nationalist uh and this book is sort of the basis for modern russian american uh, sorry modern russian relations uh and some of the tidbits that, that get into like what what he laid out this future for a sort of new imperial russia is that um germany should be offered uh, and i'm quoting from the from the wikipedia article because again I don't have, you know, I can't get an English version of this book. Um, Germany should be offered the de facto political dominance over, uh, you know, Central and East, uh, like the Protestant and Catholic states in Central and Eastern Europe, because a huge part of Russian nationalism is also um, Orthodox religion, Orthodox Christianity. Um, And so I... you know, the other thing is that they want to separate France from uh, from Britain and uh, the U.S. Um, and sort of get it, you know, try to force Germany and France closer together. And we have seen that become very much the case. Uh, and they, you know, <laughs> and the other goal is uh, they, which he describes the U.K. as an extraterritorial floating base of the U.S. Um, <laughs> I mean... <laughs> So I, I guess my, my, my question with all of um, that is, is yeah. so I, I feel the, the, the project for New American Century was very clear that uh, the reason we had to pursue regime change in the Middle East was because these places were our enemies. Uh, that seems like since like 98, that's the message they were pushing. Yeah. Um, and, and the reasons for it may have been uh, you know, resource-based or just kind of scope of influence-based. Yeah. But 
the the arguments that they presented were these people are a threat to us because they're our enemy. Yeah, I mean, in this, uh, what what I see with with this Russian strategy is like the global superpower right now is the United States, and in order for Russia to do what it does, it has to get rid of the U.S. as a global superpower. It doesn't have to attack the U.S. It doesn't have to, you know, it's not about dominating the U.S. It's about removing U.S. influence so that they can fill that void. Oh, my God. That's why they did the Russian interference and put George Bush in charge. uh, Sorry, Trump in charge. (sighs) That's what the Democrats have been talking about the entire time, because they're our enemy. That's why. Oh. And, like, I don't think that that's what happened. Um, I think Trump definitely has a lot of fucking connections to Russia and the Russian state, uh, probably because of his connections to the Russian mob, because he was a, a New York a New York real estate developer. Um, so, like, he definitely has all those connections to to Russia, and he clearly um, he clearly personally does not see the Russian government as an enemy. Um, no, but um... yeah. But that's not the same as it's not the same as Putin making him the president. It's like people voted for him. <laughs> but but the uh, I can't, I'm not even do it. I'm not gonna get into it. <laughs> yeah. What so about the steel dossier? What about uh, uh, the thing? The thing is that the, you're getting like, you know, again the idea of that that there is a large swath of the United States. Uh, political and media class that uh, of, has sort of designated Russia as an enemy. But as you brought up, yeah. they um, were, you know, making an offer to us to have joint U.S. Or joint NATO and Russian control over uh, missile sites. To uh, they, they were they're involved with uh, the U.S. decisions in uh, setting up the Iranian nuclear deal. I mean, there yeah. are agreements we had fairly recently that suggest that again they were made under obama so suggest that well they weren't really our enemies they aren't really our enemy so who does it benefit at this point to treat them as such so I think that right now it's far more useful for internal politics um, to to have a unbelievably exasperatingly large portion of the democratic base believe that somehow the Russian government managed to like they put a Cheeto in the White House. <laughs> yeah, um, but it, what it what it does like. It's a combination of things. It's really useful for neoliberal politics to make that the narrative, mm. because what it does is it um, it takes away the possibility for any other explanation, uh, such as neoliberal politics have ravaged and destroyed this country and the people who live in it for as long as they've been doing it, um, and after eight years of Obama where the recovery from the recession did nothing for the working class and the working poor, that maybe people wanted something different, anything different, for the love of God, anything different. 
And then the Democrats gave them Hillary Clinton. But so is it also then some idea that you know, we kind of have to justify that we're not that bad, that we are like, oh, we, we don't, we're not just, you know, that, that Democrats aren't that bad or that the U.S. government's not that bad, but like that the American people aren't that bad because, well, no, we, the people didn't put Trump in charge. It was some outside force. There's something else. Yeah. I mean, it's part, it's part of like maintaining American exceptionalism in a way. Uh, like, oh God, you know, we would never have homegrown fascism. It must be some ploy by our enemies. No, and it's like, it, and it's just unbelievable and galling coming out of the mouths of people when I can like sort of draw the line of how the after the U.S. Civil War the Confederacy just turned into an insurgency and it hasn't stopped since. Well, let's like, talk about that. That's also a key thing right now. With, you know, <laughs> the removal, the removal of like you know the Confederate uh, flags from military bases, from uh, being just like worn on patches by Marines, by you know NASCAR. Like there is yeah. suddenly this push to, I guess, sort of reevaluate the fact that um, that's a flag flown by one of our enemies. Well, I mean, barely. Enemy? I mean, it, like it, that's the, that's the thing is like obviously it is an enemy of good people. Um, no, but I, but I mean that like that, that that flag was flown by a a group we were physically at war. This country was physically at war with. Yeah. Um, there's, there's no, there's no, but, but like, it was, but it was know, also like, soft war. It was like, no, like the, the civil war, but it was, was also war. a civil war. Like it. And so the difference is that, uh, whereas, whereas Russia can be the other, whereas Iran can be the other, um, it's very easy because Russians live in Russia and Iranians live in Russia. Um, but the Confederacy, well, Iranians live in Iran. Um, usually, where did I say they live? Russia. Oh, Iranians live in Iran. Um, and sure, you have immigration, but uh, yes. but the Confederacy existed on this continent, and you know, and it's and the former Confederacy is within the borders of the current United States. Uh, and the people who led the Confederacy and the people who supported the Confederacy didn't go away, and their politics didn't go away. And, and which which party was that again? I mean, so at the time it was the Democratic Party, but uh, and it, and it sort of gets into history there inside the U.S. of like you know you had the switch between the parties and the Southern strategy by the Republicans under Nixon and a whole lot of stuff, but um, it's a uh, I would say that a lot of American geopolitics are, they're about resources, they're about capital. Um, but they are also, like, obviously, uh, domestic politics are important. That's why they have these massive propaganda campaigns against other countries. Um, Iraq, before the invasion, against Iran, against China, and against uh, Russia, among others. North Korea. Um, That's a key. North Korea. Um, yeah. Well, I, I think that North Korea is one of the groups that I think has done 
an extremely good job at keeping uh, U.S. intervention away from them by playing up the "we are your enemy." Well, and and we're nuts, and you can't predict what we're going to do. Yeah, I mean that's which is just an act. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, there, there's you know constant um, bluster. There's constant you know threats of nuclear tests. Yeah. The, um, well, there's still not really any clear evidence that like the um, uh, the <laughs> the dong rockets, which is what the the term for them is um are not able to hit the u.s or are able to hit the u.s there's not like any hard evidence one way yeah. or the other. they just say they I mean, are yeah which is all they need to do um north korea is never going to launch a first strike uh and in fact i would say that one of the reasons why north korea simply doesn't deal with the same stuff um that the I same ran. very real that Iran does is like, yeah, they made a nuclear weapon. And that is, in this world, a very effective way of not getting invaded. And, I mean, I, I am a proponent of giving Iran nukes. Um, I, <laughs> no, honestly, I, I think that, I think that uh, as you brought up earlier with, you know, the uh, mutually assured destruction thing, it's like, yeah, if you are able to, you know, if you let them have a nuke, we're not going to invade them. They're going to know that, and that will actually help de-escalate tension. Um, Usually it does, yeah. Um, even though I don't want anybody to have nuclear weapons, so no, that, that's I mean, kind that, of that's yeah. kind of the the fight there. Um, it, it's the same and, as prisons. They're, they're they're terrible in general, but since we have them, maybe we can send Roger Stone to one. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's a similar yeah, notion. And Bill like, Crystal. Oh God, yeah, send Bill Crystal to fucking gulags. Um. So, if we're being realistic, who are the enemies of the U.S.? There, there, there <laughs> is a quote from. Um, I'm trying to remember who it was now. It, it was it was some soldier in um who was in the surge in Iraq and yeah yeah he ha had an article he posted online like when he got back he became a journalist somewhere and uh, I can't find the article I've looked for but I remember the title of it is there is no enemy anywhere I was about to say it's like the U.S. doesn't have enemies but that's that was the point that that uh, that he made in this article um and. It essentially was this idea that uh, the majority of time going around in Iraq, it's like no, there are there are no enemies. Like even just on what is uh, presumably a active, you know, battlefield of a country, yeah, there weren't enemies to be found. Uh, yeah, like there there was like you know the um, the Iraqi uh, military forces who uh, were you know displaced under Saddam, there were, you know, uh, extremist groups that kind of rose up and became ISIS. Um, but the majority of the time, it was just U.S. troops going around and just kind of pissing everybody off and yeah. not making any sort of real geopolitical enemy, but just kind of stirring the pot. <laughs> and I, I wonder if that's still just the... If that could be easily extrapolated out to the world writ large. I mean, yeah. So so typically once an empire is established, and the U.S. empire is established, 
uh, the next strategy, you know, the, the strategy that they then maintain is a strategy of keeping any, you know, anybody who could potentially uh, undermine imperial power, um, keeping them divided, disorganized, uh, and incapable of organizing to challenge power. So what you see, so, so a lot of the U.S. government response that sort of really started in the 80s uh, and, and then the 90s. So you had the first Gulf War, um, you know, and the, that essentially, the, it was basically planned that there would be a second Iraq War. Uh, well, I mean, the, again, going back to like U.S.-Iranian relations during the Iran-Iraq War, there is some really strong evidence that we were just arming both sides. And oh yeah, we the U.S. government definitely was, including giving uh, chemical weapons to Saddam Hussein, who deployed them regularly against Iranian troops, and gave them so, intel as to where Iranian troops were going to be based off yeah. our, our communications with Iran, which was where are you going to be putting troops? Where do you need weapons? And so, really, funding and not just funding, yeah, but like classified information so, both sides to each other to allow them in to the yeah in the decades preceding that though especially in the 60s and 70s there was a very very large push for pan-arab nationalism um that at one point culminated in a, a unified state of syria egypt and uh yemen they were all one country for a little bit um, <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, and uh, a lot of that uh, pan-Arab nationalism also had some some like leftist tendencies. Uh, so that you know, so you had real communists who lived in the Middle East and who organized in the Middle East, and then you had like socialists, you know, a whole variety of them, and then you had sort of, uh, you know pan-Arab nationalists who saw uh, the United States and Europe as imperial powers that were continuing their their economic domination over the region. And so they believed that by China having... It's just true. True. It's just true. That by having a unified Arab front, um, that they would be able to challenge that power. And so... Uh, like that, <laughs> and, and so and so in the decade after that, uh, there was way more American meddling, and then eventually invasions. Um, so, I mean, that's I, just that's a, a, that's a demonstration of it. Fairly often before on the pod, um, and I know the answer, but are we the baddies? I mean, the U.S. government is. Yeah, of course it is. I think um, the um, God, was that a sorry, who the quote is from? Uh, if you know, if, if if there were no God, it would be necessary to invent him. Oh yeah, <laughs> but, but I I feel that um, the uh, U.S. geopolitical experience for a while now has been, and I think since probably the fall of the Soviet Union, and before then as well. But I think yeah. that, that puts a stark contrast on it. It does, um, yeah. If there were no enemies anywhere, it'd be necessary to invent them. And so they did. Um, yeah, and, and it just goes to show that like the world won't be safe until the American government uh, can no longer deploy force in the rest of the world. Mm -hmm.
So we're taking a minute to talk about uh, the foundations of, of geopolitics, uh, the geopolitical future of Russia, which is the uh, fascist political guide for creating a new Russian empire, basically. <laughs> Boy, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so and you, you described this earlier as like a, a the, the Russian version of the Project for New American Century, where it yeah. is that um, so a similar idea that like this is like sort of building the foundation of how. Uh, Russia is going to proceed into the the 21st century. Yeah, and you can definitely see in in like recent strategic moves by Russia that this is the grand strategy they are following. Um, and this, as you said, like was like um, there are a lot of like powerful Russian figures who. Oh yeah, yeah. This book has been used as a textbook by uh, the the Academy of the General Staff for the Russian military. So Russian generals read it. Um, it's also a very popular book among, you know, military police and, and the, you know, the political elites of Russia uh, in the same way that like American elites, uh, you know, get super geeked out about the foreign affairs magazine, which is just neoliberal garbage. <laughs> All right. um, so uh, we wanted to talk a little bit about what's in, you know, what that grand strategy includes. And so we mentioned a bit about uh, Russia wants to, the Russian state, the idea of this anyway, uh, we don't know that this is absolutely the strategy that the Russian government is using, just that uh, it seem, they seem to be operating on this grand strategy so far, um, is that Germany would essentially be that what they seek to create are a bunch of regional axes that the Russian government would interact with these regional axes um, that would essentially be patron states uh, of the Russian government. Um, yeah. And, and so those, those Axis powers would maintain uh, a strong amount of like independence and, uh, and, you know, ability for political maneuvering. But uh, the idea is that Russia wants to push other countries into these axes at the same time as it's building up relationships with these countries that it sees as the axes. So the axes it lays out are Germany um, in Europe, uh, Iran in the Middle East and uh, Central Asia, um, and uh, China uh, in, in Eastern Europe. Well, sort of China. I mean, it looks like kind of, what I yeah. can see is that they actually talk about, like, you know, they 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 want to dismantle China. They they yeah. want to in the same way that they want to dismantle the U.S. in a way. Yeah, but I'm seeing here. So they they suggest yeah. taking uh, Tibet, Xinjiang, Mongolia, and Manchurian. Yeah. As a so, security belt, they basically want to create an axis between those places and yeah. Moscow. Tibet doesn't make any sense, but. Um, yeah. So the thing is, Mongolia, though, is an independent country. And so the way you would see the Russians do that is not as, uh, like they wouldn't, I don't think they would invade Mongolia. I think they would essentially 
trying to make Mongolia a client state. Well, and, and so what I'm looking at too is like, so they talk about, you know, what things should be done. And when was this written again? This is... 1997. So, yeah. so basically the same time as the project for a new American century. Yeah, I mean, they really started like having influence in about 98. So yeah. Wow, that's spooky. Yeah. Um, but like, look, so, okay, so, for bad people. <laughs> but yeah, but this like the, the UK is merely described as an extraterritorial floating base of the US should be cut off from Europe. Yeah. And what we've seen, one of the things that indicates to me that the Russian state is following this grand strategy is that there is active Russian influence uh, in pushing Brexit in the UK. Uh, and clearly they also, like the Russian government also has uh, a special relationship, you might call it, with Boris Johnson, uh, who was <laughs> the face of Brexit. Um, a face, a face of Brexit. Along with Nigel Farage, but yeah. that's a really punchable face. Um, <laughs> yeah, so essentially, um, if we're gonna if we're gonna just talk about this as like Russia's the evil empire, Russia has succeeded at separating the UK from Europe, um, and it has also succeeded at pushing France closer to Germany, well, and, and, and it has and also succeeded at like. May, like the best relationship Russia has in Europe is with Germany. So, well, that's the thing is you look at like the the quote unquote success or failure of the project for a new American century. It was basically to allow the U.S. to build this massive empire throughout the Middle East. Yeah, and um, that hasn't really happened. Um, we went in to stabilize. We the U.S. went in and destabilized the fuck out of everything. And yeah. then couldn't really squeeze any sort of control back from it because we kept just fucking with everything there. But it seems a yeah. lot of this stuff they've gotten some success with, or at least that the thing yeah. proposed in this book have actually come to fruition. I mean, this, this one still is, is, I think, the horrifying language here. It's yeah. like the, Ukraine should be annexed by Russia because Ukraine as a state has no geopolitical meaning. No particular cultural import or universal significance. No geographic uniqueness. No ethnic exclusiveness. Its certain territorial ambitions represents an enormous danger for all of Eurasia, and without resolving the Ukrainian problem, it is generally senseless to speak about continental politics. Ukraine should not be allowed to remain independent. So, uh, yeah. And yeah. That speaks for itself. Um, but the, the, maybe the, not the, in the way that people exactly think. But, but thinking about how the language was used while Russia was annexing the Crimean Peninsula, I was saying, no, these people are Russian. Like, this is part of Russia. It always yeah. has been part of Russia. So, it's not part of Ukraine. It never was. And that speaks so much to this idea that, like, Ukraine is not a uh, political or uh, not an ethnic identity, not a cultural yeah. identity. It's, it's well, just – it's but it's that's also where this gets to be more complicated is in Ukraine you have many people – who are ethnically Russian. Um, in the Crimean Peninsula, that was particularly the case. Um, so, and, and if you look at the, and, and like, it's ob I'm not, I'm obviously not trying to defend the annexation of Crimea. No, but, um, but what but, I'm thinking of though is, I mean, it's, I, this, this, this text, this, you know. I think um, you see more of the, I think you'll see more of this when you see how the Russian state talks about Luhansk and, uh, you know, eastern Ukraine and less about Crimea. 
Um, but, but I think the the interesting thing is that there was clear U.S. involvement in Crimea, um, in, in in Ukraine during the um, the Maidan uprising. Oh yeah, and oh, yeah, and uh, I mean, like pretty clear, well detailed U.S. intervention there to essentially establish a fascist government. Yeah, which um, they have successfully done. Yeah, but that seems almost a direct response to this. Uh, uh, political project of Russia's. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, Ukraine is the unfortunate battleground for the conflict between the U.S. and Russia. And Russia was attempting to do this through economics rather than war. Um, and it was essentially when... Uh, so one of the issues is that um, the uh, uh, Yanukovych, who was a Russian speaker from eastern Ukraine... Um, and basically a puppet, a Russian puppet, uh, you know, tried to make a deal with the European Union, like an economic deal. And part of that economic deal had to do with some like aligning Ukrainian military strategy with the European Union, which is, you know, aligned with NATO. Uh, Russia saw that as a massive threat and so offered a deal that did not have those strings attached. Um, yeah. You mentioned and earlier, so sort of this, Yanukovych um, was like, "Yeah, okay, good, I'll take it," and that's yeah. what that was like. the The point that launched it is that most Ukrainians, um, and particularly at that time, Ukrainian speaking Ukrainians, wanted a closer relationship with the European Union. Well, and um, it seems like that, um, as far as I can tell, again from reading the the summary of this, that there isn't much attention given to like destabilizing the European Union, just sort of restructuring or refocusing it to be more Russian friendly. Yeah. Um, and the way it does that is by separating Europe from the US, which uh, in part, um, the US did not need help doing that. No. no. Um, but uh, it is part of this strategy that uh, Europe would be separated from the U.S. It's essentially trying to break up NATO as the you know, which is the major strategic stumbling block for Russia and Europe. Um, I mean, we're talking about enemies. I think that is actually probably a clear one. Is that NATO is an enemy to Russia? Oh, clearly, yeah, absolutely. Um, and the book goes on to to discuss uh you know so that's kind of the european plan there's also discussion of like smaller countries and it's like it's super fascist like we're talking like they talk about aryan people and you know you can look at uh you know latvia lithuania and poland would get quote special status um yeah, again yeah. i wish i could find an english translation of this book so that i could see what they meant by special status but well, I'm, I, um, I, I would love to know because it says like the uh, military operations would not be really involved. That it would be actually more like subversion, destabilization, and disinformation. Yeah, spearheaded by Russian secret service, special services, and it's like, yeah, okay. If we're talking about that, yeah. we're talking about you know the 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 specter that Democrats like to point to of. Uh, these, you know, Russian bot farms and yeah, uh, you know, spooky Russian hackers like. That actually is kind of what this book is talking about. <laughs> yeah, and also hard-headed utilization of Russia's gas, oil, and natural resources to bully and pressure other countries, which uh, they did to Ukraine in 2010. Yeah. Uh, they, shut, they shut off the flow of gas. 
uh, through Ukraine. Um, and you know that that also put pressure on Western Europe because Western Europe relies on Russian gas for heating homes. So, uh, yeah, lots of stuff at play there. Um, Russia needs to create "quote unquote" geopolitical shocks within Turkey. These can be achieved by employing Kurds, Armenians, or either minorities. Yep. Um, and you're not seeing that as much. Uh, uh, no, I think that but, kind of just happened with the destabilization yeah. of um, Syria. Yeah. Um, and also where Turkey has become separated from the U.S. in a lot of ways and from, I mean, it's still a member of NATO, but it's also pretty separated from NATO. And so that's where you see a lot of like set the Russians selling them weapons as part of trying to drag that drag them out, you know, pull them farther and farther away from NATO. Uh, I would not say that Turkey is an ally of Russia um, because Turkey is also invading Syria and Syria is very much an ally of Russia. Yeah. So uh, some complicated interests at stake there. So um, there's also some revanchism uh, with uh, the idea that um, that like the Central Asian states uh, and the Caucasus essentially should be Russian. Um, so like Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, uh, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, and Uzbekistan. Uh, and then uh, there's a suggestion that Azerbaijan should be split up and given to Iran. Armenia should be used as a strategic base and like largely preserved because they are an Aryan people. Ugh. Yeah, and then in the Far East, um, this is like you know, weird. Think, this is like God. This is like this is Naz bullshit. <laughs> it is, yeah. And then <laughs> you know, and if I uh, and and so uh, if Americans are feeling like they're uh, you know the main target of Russian efforts, that's not entirely true because they also see China as a major danger, uh, as we talked about, and they would like to see. Um, well, like China, I'm quoting like, from the Wikipedia page, though. It says, like, the, yeah. the book emphasizes that Russia must spread anti-Americanism everywhere. The main scapegoat will be precisely the U.S. Yeah. Um, it doesn't need much help in that, but yeah. Um, and also, like, its idea with China is that they want to push China in a more southern direction instead of north. And so... Uh, and well, you can and, also see, you know, offering, talking about Japanese politics, talking about offering the Kuril Islands, which they have not done to Japan and provoking anti-Americanism, which again, America's really good at provoking anti-Americanism by itself. Like we mentioned at the beginning of this episode, American troops are bringing, co you know, COVID to Japan. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> um, not, and, and like Japan is also, uh, the Japanese government is extremely conservative. I would argue borderline fascist as well. Um, and they're like a, talking about rearming if the U.S. pulls out. Well, but I think it's it's appropriate to talk about th th there are ideas that this book seems to flirt with that really buck up the uh, Democrat. Um, not warmongering but the 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 notion that russia is an enemy to the u.s 
Um, yeah. And, and a lot of the Russiagate conspiracy stuff really is um, almost explicitly stated in this, where it's, you know, Russia should introduce geopolitical disorder into internal American activity, encouraging all kinds of separatism and ethnic, social, and racial conflicts, actively supporting all dissident movements, extremist, racist, and sectarian groups, thus destabilizing internal political processes in the U.S., it would also make sense simultaneously to support isolationist tendencies in American politics. Yeah, there you go. But again, like, again, so much of that, like, it doesn't need Russian help. Uh, like, the the war in Iraq by itself um, created those isolationist tendencies. It did not need Russian help. People, you know, people saw that war and they're like, oh, we need to not do that anymore. Yeah, well, and that's the, the thing so, is, it, it's it's. I feel that the uh, the majority of means they wanted to achieve just kind of have happened generally, and I think there still is a question of like, well, how much influence does it take to encourage Americans to be terrible? Um, and I, I think not yeah. a lot of encouragement. I think that uh, we're yeah. probably pretty good at just doing that ourselves. Yeah. So I think, and, and it's also like when you look at this analysis, the thing that strikes me is uh, that, you know, despite the fact that these are terrible ends that they are trying to, to, uh, to meet, um, that it is actually a pretty strong understanding of what the current state of affairs looks like. Um, yeah. what those relationships are, who holds power. Um, and I, I don't think we really see that with a lot of uh, American foreign policy. So Yeah. I mean, the, the idea that, you know, the, the Project for New American Century um, appears to have not really realized that uh, there are different... Uh, uh, sects of uh islam uh that seems like something yeah. that was not really part of any sort of decision to be involved in iraq it was sort of treated as this this real monolith and i think that still is pretty common i mean uh, you, you talk to um at least folks on the right in this country and they very much believe that like all islam is islam and yeah, I, I think, yeah, and so it's hard to have conversations discussing uh, like Iranian internal politics because trying to explain why the the clerics have so much power and why there is this uh, very intense animosity between Iran and other nations surrounding them. Yeah. And it's, you can't have that conversation when everyone is sort of blinded to the... Uh, ideologies the cultures of these places and i feel that this book uh really gets well at least the summary of it (laughs) the summary does again that's that's the hard part i i I agree to find an english translation of this that's not yeah uh, or uh or get my russian good enough that i can read it which definitely can't right Um, I think that's probably uh, good for now for that, though. Um, I don't want to get too yeah. much further into it. I think we covered that. Join, it's a long road. Join us for Politics 102 next week. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it is a long road. Um, 
Yeah, we, we don't, know don't really know where we're going. At all. But we will get there together. Alright, thank you for guys. Wait.